0: Hello, podcast listeners. I am currently switching a lot of my podcast from my Bearded Disciple podcast to here on Ratio Christi CSU. Uh, This is one of those podcasts. Hope you enjoy.
1: All right. So how many of you are familiar with the moral argument? Have you have some familiarity with it? How many of you think it's a decent argument? How many of you think it's an awful argument or just not that great? (laughs) Okay. Okay. Tonight, what I want to do is go over, I I don't usually do this, but I wanted to go through some of the objections that have been brought up by an internet atheist to William Lane Craig's version of the the moral argument. Uh, I thought it would be instructive. Um, Hopefully it will be, if not instructive, at least a little bit fun to kind of go through and respond to somebody who's responding kind of at that level. And then after that, then I want to go a little bit more into let's look at some better reasons for maybe why the moral argument isn't so good and maybe some other versions of the moral argument. So it's going to be a little bit dependent on the audio because I want to show you guys some videos. Uh, Hopefully it'll be a little more interesting that way. Yeah? Do you think the moral argument is a good argument? I think think certain versions of it are better than other versions. I do think it's a good argument, but it's not as strong as, say, the cosmological argument or the design argument, in some ways it could be more persuasive, I think, because it appeals to something that all of us have. If Some of us can't think super abstractly about essence and existence or about the impossibility of an actual infinite, you know, so the, the cosmological arguments might be tougher to get if you, if you don't like that. But when you talk about the moral law, uh, that's something that we all have some familiarity with. So I like it, be, even if it's not as strong technically as an art. Uh, of an argument. What I like about it is its applicability to just everybody. Everybody has a sense that there's some things that are right and some things that are wrong. They may interpret that differently, but everybody has at least some kind of sense of that. Is that, okay, yeah. So we'll start with William N. Craig's argument. It's a syllogism, of course. He loves syllogisms, which I, I like too, because it makes arguments very concise and clear and to the point. The first premise is, if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Premise two, objective moral values and duties, oh, I put two exists. sorry, do exist, uh, and the conclusion is, therefore, God exists. Okay, so that's the argument. This is a deductive argument, and it's in the form of what's called modus ponens. So it's an if P, then Q, the form is P, therefore Q. And what he's done, if, if he put this argument in that form, it would look like um, if objective moral values and duties do exist, then God exists. That would be the modus ponens version. And what he's done is he's taken the contrapositive form of the argument and he's said if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Okay? What you can do in a syllogism is you can take the premises and you can reorder them. and There are valid and invalid ways of doing that. One of the ways that you do that is to put this in the form of a, con- in the uh, not Q, if not Q, then not P, P therefore Q It's the form of the argument. And he goes through, he has this on his website, his symbolized derivation of this, uh, basically showing the validity of the argument. And what's interesting is a lot of people don't, I can't think of anybody who actually says the argument is invalid. They might think it's unsound, they might think some of the premises are false, but it would be pretty hard to argue that the actual form of the argument is invalid. Okay, so that's not really at issue here. So I'm going to show you a video. This is a, a pop-level explanation of the moral argument put out by William Lane Craig. It, Can you be good without God? Let's find out. Oh, absolutely astounding.
2: There you have undeniable proof You can be good without believing in God. But wait, the question isn't, can you be good without believing in God? The question is, can you be good without God?
1: Can you guys hear it? See,
2: here's the problem. If there is no God, what basis remains for objective good or bad, right or wrong? If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. And here's why. Without some objective reference point, we have no way of saying that something is really up or down. God's nature provides an objective reference point for moral values. It's the standard against which all actions and decisions are measured. But if there's no God, there's no objective reference point. All we're left with is one person's viewpoint, which is no more valid than anyone else's viewpoint. This kind of morality is subject, not object. It's like a preference for strawberry ice cream. The preference is in the subject, not the object. So it doesn't apply to other people. In the same way, subjective morality applies only to the subject. It's not valid or binding for anyone else. So in a world without God, there can be no evil and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. God has expressed his moral nature to us as commands. These provide the basis for moral duties. For example, God's essential attribute of love is expressed in his command to love your neighbor as yourself. This command provides a foundation upon which we can affirm the object of goodness, generosity, self-sacrifice, and equality. And we can condemn as objectively evil greed abuse, and discrimination. This raises a problem, is something good just because God wills it? Or does God will something because it is good? The answer is, neither one. Rather, God wills something because he is good. God is the standard of moral values, just as a live musical performance is the standard for a high fidelity recording.
3: Without your love,
2: the more a recording sounds like the original, the better it is. Likewise, the more closely a moral action conforms to God's nature, the better it is. But if atheism is true, there is no ultimate standard. So there can be no moral obligations or duties. Who or what lays such duties upon us? No one. Remember, for the atheist, humans are just accidents of nature highly evolved animals. But animals have no moral obligations to one another. When a cat kills a mouse, it hasn't done anything morally wrong. The cat's just being a cat. If God doesn't exist, we should view human behavior in the same way. No action should be considered morally right or wrong. But the problem is good and bad, right and wrong, do exist. Just as our sense experience convinces us that the physical world is objectively real. Our moral experience convinces us that moral values are objectively real. Every time you say, hey, that's not fair, that's wrong, that's an injustice, you affirm your belief in the existence of objective morals. We're well aware that child abuse, racial discrimination and terrorism are wrong, for everybody, always. Is this just a personal preference or opinion? No. The man who says that it is morally acceptable to rape little children is just as mistaken as the man who says two plus two equals five. What all this amounts to then is a moral argument for the existence of God. If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. But objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, God exists. Atheism fails to provide a foundation for the moral reality every one of us experiences every day. In fact, the existence of objective morality points us directly to the existence of God.
1: Okay, so there's a Dr. Craig popular video of The Moral Argument. And now we'll watch, uh, I think this is the rational, I, something like that, yeah. <clears throat> so watch that, that one. This is a response to his argument.
4: <clears throat> the argument from morality has been around for eons, showing a particular rise to prominence during the 18th century thanks to a man of car, and then again in recent years thanks to William Lane Craig. Because of this, it's Craig's version that we're going to eviscerate this video. And so brace yourself, my friends. The haters are coming. This is the argument for morality debunked. When debating with a theist, there are certain subjects that are bound to come up, and morality is most certainly one of them. It is, of course, raised in numerous ways, but it almost always boils down to the assertion that if there isn't a God, then there is no objective and absolute morality. That murder is only immoral because we currently agree that it is immoral. Or as Craig puts it in his book titled On God, in a world without God, who is to say whose values are right and whose are wrong? There can be no objective right and wrong, only our culturally and personally relative subjective judgments. This, in essence, creates mantra on morality. And unlike many apologists, he's been kind enough to provide us with a syllogistic rendition of his assertion. And it is this syllogism that we're going to debunk in this video.
5: If God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Objective moral values and duties do
4: exist. Therefore, God exists. Before we proceed to debunk Craig's moral argument, I want to make it clear that Craig does not, all of the time, commit all of the following flaws and fallacies, but rather, he commits each of the following flaws at different times, and the same goes for those who use his moral argument. With that said, the first flaw I'd like to raise is that premise 1 is completely unsubstantiated, making the entire argument a non separate It in no way logically follows that only a specific God can be responsible for the existence of objective moral values, unless the proponent is literally defining objective moral values to mean moral values, principles and duties that are declared by God. And if they are doing this, then they are including the claim of their argument within their premise, which is begging the question. To illustrate this further, simply replace the word God with Cthulhu. And you'll quickly appreciate how absurd this argument is. It's either a non sequitur or it's begging the question. A second flaw that Craig's moral argument commits, and one that is subtle but completely devastating, is an equivocation fallacy. To put it as bluntly as possible, during his first premise, Craig and his argument uses a definition of the term objective moral values, that is, for all intent and purposes, the definition of absolute moral values. That is, moral values, principles, and duties that are universally valid and true unconditionally and under all circumstances. But during his second premise, he uses a definition of the term objective moral values, that is, moral values, principles, and duties that exist independent of human opinion, but may vary according to context and circumstance. Hence, Craig's moral argument is incoherent and therefore invalid. Either this, or Craig and his argument are exclusively using the first definition or the second definition of objective moral values for both of his premises. And if he is using the first definition, then his first premise is entirely false, because there are many types of morality that are absolute, that don't insist on his specific God's existence, such as the deontological ethics of Kant's categorical or imperative, some forms of the golden rule and, of course, competing forms of divine command theory. These objective moralities exist, period. The question is whether or not their foundations are substantiated, as is this the question of the Craig-specific divine command theory. And if Craig is using the second definition of objective moral values for both of his premises, then, again, the first premise is entirely false. Because, again, There are many types of morality that are objective in this way. That is, they have an objective reference point, a reference point that exists independent of human opinion. For example, just as consequentialism uses the objective reference point of potential consequences, and just as the moral landscape uses the objective reference point of the well-being of conscious creatures, Craig uses the objective reference point of his specific interpretation of Christianity. Which is ironically subjective, not objective. Hence, Craig and his argument either commit an equivocation fallacy or his first premise is entirely false, with either of which resulting in the obliteration of his argument. But here's where things get really quite interesting. Craig has frequently stated that he doesn't use the term absolute moral values because to say they're absolute
5: moral values could be taken to mean that certain moral duties hold regardless of the circumstances you're in. So thou shalt not kill, regardless of the fact that a terrorist is about to kill your wife and children.
4: And he frequently states that he deliberately uses the term objective morality, stating that objective moral values mean that
5: in any given situation in which you might find yourself, there is something that is really right and really wrong independently of human opinion. But clearly that might vary with the circumstances. In some cases it would be morally permissible to kill, but in other cases it would be morally impermissible to kill. So what I'm talking about is objective right and wrong, but not necessarily absolutes that take no cognizance of the circumstances in which a person finds himself.
4: But listen carefully to the following clip of him explaining objective moral values to a different audience.
5: What we're talking about here are unconditional
4: obligations
5: or unconditional goods or or evils. Yes, I think that there there clearly are. For example, uh, it's unconditionally good to be a loving and generous person. And I think that when most of us reflect on our moral experience, we, we do see that there is a clear objective, unconditional
4: difference between modes of behavior. Sorry, Craig, but did you just say that it's unconditionally good to be a loving and generous person? That, for example, if a terrorist was about to kill your wife and child, you would have to be loving and generous towards him unconditionally, i.e., regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the fact that he's about to kill your wife and children. Because, as you have stated many times before, that's an absolute statement, not an objective or relative one. This, my friends, is how you play tennis without the men. And this is a prime example of Craig either intentionally or unintentionally committing an equivocation fallacy. Now, if I'm honest, the three flaws that we've just covered are each more than enough to destroy Craig's moral argument. But for what it's worth, here's a few additional it might be subtle, but Craig and the proponents of his moral argument very often commit an argument from ignorance. They do this because they implicitly assert, and sometimes explicitly, that only their very specific God can be responsible for the existence of objective moral values, without justifying why this is the case. In fact, they often say,
5: Take away God and what basis then remains for
4: objective morals?" which translated from flood to English means, we don't know, therefore God. My very specific one. A fourth major flaw that Craig's moral argument commits, and one that shares a strong relationship with the argument from ignorance, is the shifting of the burden of proof. In their assertion that, if not who, then what, they are very clearly trying to switch the burden of proof, because they are indirectly asserting that if you can't account for objective moral values then their assertion must be true. Which isn't just ludicrous, it's actually a subtle black and white fallacy. But don't get me started on that one. And finally, as the last flaw that I will raise in this video, we have the fact that Craig's moral argument doesn't support monotheism. Even if objective moral values existed in the way that Craig insists, this wouldn't even suggest, let alone proof that a single god is responsible. There is no reason to rule out the possibility that many gods are responsible. And in fact, there is no reason to rule out the possibility that many petulant and childish gods were responsible that have since died. The point being, Craig's argument supports theism, not monotheism, and certainly not his specific monotheism. Of course, Craig uses additional arguments to try and justify his specific monotheism. But the case in point here being, is that his argument does not. Now, of course, depending on the proponent of Craig's moral argument, there are many more flaws and fallacies that they commit. But so far as I can tell, we've covered the main ones here, and certainly enough to bury Craig's presentation on them. So, to recap, Craig's moral argument is flawed because Craig and his proponents either commit a non-sequitur fallacy or a begging the question fallacy. They commit an equivocation fallacy, and sometimes many. They commit an argument from ignorance. They attempt to shift the burden of proof. And the argument doesn't support monotheism, and certainly doesn't support the proponent's specific monotheism. Anyhow, as always, thank you kindly for the view. And I just want to say an extra special thank you to my kind patrons. Thank you. And here's an overwhelmingly powerful argument to consider. If you're not subscribed to my channel, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, you subscribe to my channel.
1: Ah. Okay. So on a scale from 1 to 10, 1 being like, oh my gosh, that was just a ridiculous response to Craig. 10 being, oh my gosh, he obliterated and annihilated Craig's argument. What would you say? Three? Five? Five? Six? Seven? Five? Three? Okay. All right. Well, cool. Let's talk about it then. So let's go through his argument a little bit. If you notice, he really didn't touch the second premise very much that objective moral values and duties exist. He talked about it, and there was one case where he actually said there's an inconsistency in the first, how terms are used in the first premise and the second premise, but he didn't really just outright deny that objective moral values and duties exist. He really focused on the first premise. So his first criticism is, well, the first premise is completely unsubstantiated, therefore the entire argument is a non sequitur, or in other words, it doesn't follow. So that's his claim, it's unsubstantiated. He says it's wrong because it in no way logically follows that only a specific God can be responsible for the existence of objective moral values. This is a point that he keeps coming back to quite often. He then says the only way you can save premise one, because this, again, this is the premise that we're really critiquing, is that if you simply just define objective moral values as moral values and moral values principles and duties that are declared by God, he said, "Under those conditions, then maybe you could save the argument, but the problem then is now you're begging the question. Begging the question is trying to prove what you're, assume the thing that you're trying to prove in the argument, okay? Does that make sense, what, what the overall argument is, okay? So let's start with the first one. Premise one is completely unsubstantiated. Therefore, the entire argument is a non sequitur. So, sure, if it's false, then the, the conclusion doesn't follow. But you don't need to know anything else about the argument other than it's a deductive argument to know that. This is not an actual critique of the first premise. This is just stating that the first premise is false, therefore the conclusion doesn't follow. Okay? So that that alone isn't really a response to the argument, to actual content of the argument. So if I say... Uh, uh, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. That's a that's a valid and sound argument. If I say, um, all moons are made of cheese, our, uh, the Earth has a moon, therefore the, the, our moon is made of cheese. Even if it's valid, it's not true because it doesn't have true conclusions, right? So a denial of the truth of the conclusion, of course, is going to show that the prem, the or the premise that's going to show that the conclusion is false. Okay. So he actually gives something a little bit more substantial. And premise one is wrong. Why? Because it in no way logically follows that only a specific God can be responsible for the existence of objective moral values. So the first premise again, if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. That's wrong because it in no way logically follows um, that a specific God has to be responsible for the existence of objective moral values. Problem? is of course it doesn't logically follow. It's a premise. It's either true or false. It doesn't logically follow. If you guys remember back to our discussion on logic, premises are statements that are ordered. You have one premise, a second premise, and then a conclusion. The conclusion either follows logically from the premises or it does not. The premises aren't, they don't logically follow. The premises themselves are either true or false. So this claim actually just displays a lack of knowledge of basic rudimentary logic. So the, um, if then, right, if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist, is what's called an implication. Okay, That is not a conclusion to an argument that can be valid or invalid. Did you have a horn? Did you have a?
6: Doesn't
1: specifically say that it's a Christian God. Okay. So that's what he's. It sounds like he's assuming, right? And he's saying that it's wrong because he's making that assumption. Right, and that's a that's a point that he keeps making throughout the entire video. Is Craig's very very specific view of divine command theory, or Craig's very very specific God? Yeah, good. It wouldn't even be valid then. Because he's, re- he's saying that it doesn't logically follow. He's saying that a premise does not logically follow.
6: So he would have to it's he either true or false. Follows, he would have to say it is false because...
1: Right. Exactly. Yep. Then he would actually be making a substantive critique. At this point, he's not even making a substantive critique. Okay. Alan, did you have something? Or? No. Okay. Next he says you can only save premise one by defining it that way. Right? He says the only way that you can save the premise is by just defining objective moral values as moral values, principles, and duties that are declared by God. But if you do that, it begs the question. So the, the question we have to ask then to, re, to respond to this is simply, does Craig define it that way? If he doesn't, this is another substance-less or baseless critique. Well, how does he define it? To say that moral values and duties are objective is to say that something is right or wrong, good or evil, independent of whether or not we believe it to be so or not. So I got a little caption of Craig saying, I don't define objective morality that way, bro. It's not begging the question. And it's true. If he's defining it that way, which he does in almost all of his writings and in his videos, then he's not begging the question. Yeah? Yeah.
7: How
8: does that work out
1: in this? Oh, good. Yeah, we'll come to that. Okay. Yep.
8: Yeah. Um, so, kind of somewhat back to the previous section that you're talking about, uh, why is it
7: incorrect
8: to say that? I mean, so his wording uh, is false in that you can't logically follow, you know, that that's
7: not good wording. But if you were just to say that, the original premise is false because um, you know, there can be other premises that can replace it
1: that mm-hmm.
7: don't involve yep. um, a necessity of God, then
1: why is that a... a okay. that, that's the way he should do it. Okay. The way he should do it is saying, look, this premise is false, and here are my reasons for thinking that it's false. And he does do that later on. Okay. right? He's, and we'll, we'll talk about that too. then does not follow from the if, and it, Yeah, okay, but, and? Sure. <laughs> so what, right? Like, it's not supposed to follow. His problem is thinking that it should follow. It's an implication, and it's either a true or false implication. It's okay. not a valid guess, or invalid implication. It, it
7: just, yeah, he gets to you later that he would say it's a false
1: implication. Right. Yeah, so he gets in his, he keeps his recurring thing is, well, there are lots of other objective moralities that don't require God, so that, but he needs to say, I'm taking him at his word right now, sure. because I want to show that these guys are just in, very imprecise. They're very persuasive in large part because they're imprecise, yeah. because they play on a lot of emotions, they play on a lot of popular ideas or popular conceptions of God that are out there. That's why they're so persuasive. And that's why I'm responding specifically to what he says and not being very charitable at this point. Because I wanna I wanna say let's look at this more precision and point out what precisely is wrong with it, and then let's maybe bolster his argument a little bit and then respond to that. But yeah, I see you're trying to be charitable, so I understand. Yeah, it's good. (laughs) Have to
8: agree with that. The if it's. Premise, a, the premise is wrong, but the logic is
1: sound. You'd, you'd have to say that it's a. You'd have to, If the form is correct, you'd have to say it's a valid argument. Right. Even though it's not sound, and soundness has to mean that it's both valid and the premises are true. True, right. Yep. Okay.
8: Yeah. So, yeah, that's what you're saying.
1: Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. All right. Anybody else on that point yet? Yes. Okay. All right. So the next point. <clears throat> Okay, we talked about this. Um, If he's going to say that, look, he's not saying that uh, Craig is actually defining objective morality this way. He's saying that the only way that you can save the argument is to define it this way, right? Well, Craig, in fact, doesn't define it that way. And you haven't shown any other reasons to think that the argument is actually false yet, at this point. So it's, it's not the case that Craig has to define objective moral values in this way in order to save the argument, since none of your previous objections have actually made much of a dent on his argument yet. Maybe later ones will. But up until this point, we haven't seen any actually substantive critiques. His next one, I think, is more substantive. Oh, but first, let me just play this so you can see it out of, the, out of his own mouth, how he divines them.
5: Not exist Now, what do I mean when I say there are objective moral values and duties? It's critical that we understand this term. To say that moral values and duties are objective is to say that something is right or wrong, good or evil, independently of whether we believe it to be so or not. So, for example, to say that Nazi anti-Semitism was objectively wrong, is to say that Nazi anti-Semitism was wrong, even though the Nazis thought that it was right. And it would still be wrong, even if the Nazis had won World War II and succeeded in brainwashing or exterminating everybody who disagreed with them, so that everybody thought that the Holocaust was good. And the argument or claim here is that in the absence of God, Moral values and duties are not objective in that
1: sense. Okay, so I just wanted you guys to hear from him how he defines these things. So to this point, right, we have a criticism. The first premise is false. It's a non sequitur. Uh, it doesn't follow that the only speci- only a specific God can be responsible for objective morality. And the argument only works if you define objective moral, moral values uh, and pre- uh, his principles and duties that are declared by God, right? So his critique is his first critique is that Craig is committing the non sequitur. His second critique is that um, oh, it doesn't follow. What was his? It yeah, you're right. It was still the same, the non sequitur. It doesn't follow because uh, the, the premise is false. This was actually the right way to do it. The premise is false. Why? Because it, it's not that it doesn't follow but that it's at least possible that you might have other objective moral values. But that's not how he says it. He says it doesn't follow. So I'm gonna be strict here and just say, who cares? If it doesn't follow, I don't care because it's an implication, not an argument where it should follow. Third, argument only works if you define objective moral values. He argues that that's begging the question. Well, Craig just doesn't define it that way. He's not begging the question, so let's move on, okay? This one's a more substantive critique. In fact, I think it's probably the most substantive critique that he offers. He says that Craig is using objective moral values in one premise differently than he's using it in another premise. And here he says, in one premise, Craig talks about objective moral values and duties being unconditional, and in another premise, he talks about them being conditional. Uh, And then he says, hence Craig's argument is incoherent and therefore invalid. He is right that if he is committing this equivocation, where he's using these two terms differently, then it does become an invalid argument, right? Because the, the correct form is if P then Q, P therefore Q. I'm using the standard rather than the, the contrapositive because it's just easier to see. What he would be doing if he was committing equivocation would be saying if P then Q R, therefore Q because he would be what's called introducing a new term into the argument right you've got now you've got objective morality being split into two different terms you can't do that <clears throat> so if he's right then the val- the argument is invalid the problem is is that he cites no debates no papers where Craig explicitly claims to define the terms differently it's not obvious that he's claiming the terms differently he has other lectures and in his books he There's no indication that he's using these terms differently. He later on in the the video brings up different clips from we're not sure where to talk about Craig elaborating on his view of objective morality. Even if Craig believed that there were, uh, at one time, that there were unconditional objective morals and then conditional objective morals, even if he believes that, it doesn't mean that he's necessarily using those terms differently in this argument. You have to show not just that he believes it, but that he's using the terms differently in this argument, and he gave no reason to think so. So unless he does that, again, we don't have a substantive critique. Yeah. So you're
7: saying even though um, Craig stated that uh, unconditional stuff outside mm-hmm. of the argument, yep.
1: Exactly. There's things that Craig argues for. Craig offers what's called the, Leibniz the Leibnizian cosmological argument. I remember listening to him deliver that talk at Wake Forest University. And that argument depends on, their be, at least the way he argued for it, depended on there being things like states of affairs that existed and that numbers exist and that kind of thing. And he offered that as a, a good argument for God's existence. Craig's an austere nominalist. He doesn't believe any of that stuff. But he offers an, another argument uh, called the Leibnizian argument and just says, hey, if you believe in these kinds of things, it seems to follow. If you believe in state, that states of affairs exist, there are perfectly respectable philosophers like Alvin Plantinga who thinks that. Here's an argument. It's a good argument if, if you believe that stuff. I don't happen to. But here you go. Here's the argument. And in fact, in his most recent arg- debate with uh, uh, Weinberg... Willenberg or, yeah, Willenberg, yeah. He actually took the advice of a guy named David Baggett, who we'll talk about a little later, and weakened his form of the argument, not because he even he likes the argument, but he likes his own argument better. And he just used it because he thought it would be more practical in that particular argument. So, you, so in a debate or in a criticism of Craig's argument, you have to deal with the argument, Right? What we're tempted to do a lot of times, either to be charitable or to be very uncharitable, is to read all of these things that we think he's saying into it. Just take it for what it says, right? Maybe it's bad based on just what it says. And I don't think he's doing that. And then I think sometimes we're overly charitable in, to people on our own side and don't just take them for what they're saying. Does that answer? Okay. So valid, invalid. Yeah. So I don't know if I'm,
7: maybe I'm misunderstanding, but could this be an ad hominem argument? I
1: don't know if I know that. Argument right. uh, well, he he, he, the argument? well, he's attacking the argue, argument, but it's not the argument really that Craig's giving. Okay. So it's, a, it's called a straw man fallacy. Oh, yeah. Yep. So he's building up a straw man of what he's, he wants people to see as being Craig's argument destroys that argument and then therefore concludes that Craig has been eviscerated. Yep. Says, if Craig is using the first definition in both premises, so now he's moving on, and he says, okay, maybe Craig's, if Craig's not using the premises differently, let's just assume that he is using objective moral values, that term, the same way in both premises. It's still wrong, why? Because there are many types of morality that are absolute that don't insist on his specific God's existence. One key point to note, if you listen to William Lane Craig's lectures or his Defenders podcast or any of this stuff, he will tell you, I'm not arguing for the Christian God. As far as he's concerned, it could be the Muslim God. It's theism in general. It's a very general theism that he's arguing for. Okay? Uh, so if someone says, well, he's just he never gets to the Christian God. Okay, He's not trying to. He says explicitly that in many places. So Craig would say, yeah, I'm just not arguing for a specific God. But let's get back to this argument or this claim that there are many other types of morality that are absolute and don't insist on, his, on a God's existence. The examples he gives of absolute morality, that which you hate to be done, it's basically a form of the golden rule, uh, do not do it to another. He gives... Uh, Islamic sort of theories or meta-ethical theories or divine command theories as an example. And then he gives Immanuel Kant as an example of an objective theory that does not require God. The problem is that Kant said that God is a, and immortality is a necessary postulate for the existence of, the object, of the objective morality. Divine command theory by Muslims, that's the view that Craig holds. That which the, the, um, the, uh, why can't I think of it? The Golden Rule. This form of the Golden Rule is found in many religious traditions who typically take it to be something that comes from God. So all the examples that he gives are actually not good examples at all. Kant actually gives a moral argument for God's existence. Now, his primary goal is not to justify the existence of God. It's, to, it's to, to justify the existence of an objective moral law. And he's trying to... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. It doesn't. No, it doesn't mean that they had to believe that there is a God. But two of the examples do, right? The Kant and Muslim scholars, you better believe that they connect God and morality very intimately, right? So those two at least are not good examples. The third one is actually what's called a first order moral claim. It's not even a second order moral claim. So you could hold this, you could hold to the golden rule as being an objective moral claim, you could hold it as being a subjective moral claim, you could hold it as being an emotive claim, just a claim of uh, that's actually just an assertion of your emotions, it doesn't at all follow that just because you believe this first order claim, this uh, golden rule, that it means that there's some kind of objective morality. So none of these examples are good examples. What's crazy is there actually are good examples of this, and he doesn't use any of them. Yeah. Well, Kant was in the Christian tradition.
7: Sure, so Kant might not be,
1: but yeah, Kant would definitely not be a good example. Uh, Muslims, um, yeah, I mean, if if, but the, here's the thing, though. The problem is, is, that if you're a divine command theorist, you could you could defend divine command theory apart from defending Allah or Yahweh. You can de, you can be. A divine, and that's what he specifically references. I mean, he gives the picture is of the Quran, and right. Obviously, this is a, a Muslim reference. But um, divine command theory is something that's found in both of those religions. Okay. So it was just
7: based on the his
1: argument above the picture that we were taking. Yeah.
7: So I mean, yeah, the Kant's not a great one. But the other two could be legitimate examples for. Why you don't need Craig's specific God's existence for that premise to hold.
1: It's a possibility. Yep. Yeah. So you could hold that uh, the Muslim God exists, which if you get into the details, there's obviously differences metaphysically between the Muslim God and the Christian God.
7: Sure. his point that you don't need Craig's specific God's existence for this premise to hold
1: yeah who cares right. <laughs> right right my problem is that it's just super sloppy it's extremely sloppy the criticism um, and that's mainly what I'm trying to point out is that these these guys it sounds very persuasive but it is extraordinarily sloppy it, so when you know when Ellen Plantinga says that Richard Dawkins God delusion book uh, it's an insult to Sophomores to call it sophomoric. He's not being. I mean, sounds like he's just being a jerk. But when you really know how facile some of these arguments are, or some of these claims are, you get mad. You're like, why? Why do people find that convincing? You know. Now, again, they hint, right? A lot of these gesture towards or hint at more substantial arguments, right? But he has not made the case. <clears throat> so Kant, he takes as a given that we're morally obliged to perfectly conform our lives to the moral law. A person isn't morally obliged to do something he can't do. Ought implies can. Moral perfection must be possible from premises 1 and 2. Moral perfection is not possible in this life. Moral, the moral self must survive death so that the self can endlessly progress towards moral perfection from 3 and 4. He says that... Uh, the moral self must survive death. The moral self can only sur- survive death if God exists. Therefore, God exists. Okay? So now in Kant, it's not necessarily like this. Uh, God has to exist in order for objective moral values and duties to exist. It is different than Craig. It's more a, look, God has to exist in order for us to, be, to follow the moral law, in order for us to be perfected. Why? Because we're not going to be perfected in this life. It's going to take a whole other life. So we have to have have an immortal soul as well. And we can only have that if God exists. So that's kind of the the layers of dependence for Kant. It's different than Craig. But he still comes to this conclusion that God exists. Uh, We kind of covered that. So he says, then, these objective moralities exist, period. The question is whether or not these foundations are substantiated. So, well, let me ask you guys, what do you think of that? Do you think that's?
7: So, I mean, if, like, you could take those as they're describing other objective moralities or other bases for an objective morality, right? Mm-hmm. And the question is, okay, whether their foundations are substantiated, to me, that's just, say, that's the question he should have been asking about the first premise to begin with. Mm-hmm. Is, is the pr- first premise's foundation substantiated? Right. So he just, all he's done is got back to what he should have asked of the first premise
1: yep. to begin with. And the problem is these examples are just not good examples, right? The first one, the golden rule one, it's again, it's a first order claim it's not even an objectivist or a subjectivist or an emotivist or a naturalist or a non-naturalist or anything, theory of morality. Sure. It's just a first-order, hey, it's wrong to do these things. It's wrong to do... And I'm sorry, I should explain first-order versus second-order. So a first-order claim is something like, you shouldn't kill people, it's not good. Or you should take care of your children because that's good. Or you should be kind to strangers because it's good. It's basically a, a claim... Of, about the content of what you should or should not do. That's a first order claim. A second order claim is a claim about first order claims. Okay, so when first second order claims are things like: what does it mean for something to be good? What does it mean for something to be bad? Not whether or not it's wrong to kill your you know your dog or it's okay or it's good to treat your grandmother well. It's in any of those cases what does it mean when we call those things good and what does it mean when we call those things bad and on what grounds do we make those claims and assertions? Offering a first order claim doesn't do that. It doesn't answer a, those second order questions and that's what's required to have an, a theory of ethics or a theory, actually particularly meta-ethics. Okay? And an objectivist theory of ethics is, is a meta-ethical position. Yeah?
0: So another thing I- trying to say that because we don't, it, in some ways it almost seems to say because we don't know what the objective moral truth is, there can't be one. Right. And that yeah. seems to be a flaw within it. You know, if we were trying to find an explanation for some phenomenon mm-hmm. and we had a few scientific theories of what an explanation of that was, we wouldn't somehow say, well, because there's disagreement about this and we don't know what the objective answer is there's not an objective answer. right? We're just saying we don't know what it is. So even bringing these up, all that's saying is there's a disagreement about what the moral objective is. It's not saying that there isn't one. He has to make a case still that there isn't an objective moral.
1: Yeah, and he never tries to do that. Like, he seems satisfied with just saying, okay, fine, I'll, I'll, I won't argue against the fact that there's objective morality. Right. I'll just say that your God isn't required for that. Right. You know? But yeah, you're right. Someone There are people who do say that. Like, right, know.
0: and I feel like that's what he's kind of trying to do here, is to say, in, in a sense, I feel like by bringing in these other ones, he's trying to, to disprove the possibility of objective moral truth by saying there's this disagreement about what that truth is.
1: Why do you think that?
0: Um, to me, him bringing in and saying like, well... This religion says it's that, and God says it's this, Mm
4: -hmm.
0: and these pagan philosophers say it's that, to Mm -hmm. me seems to be an attempt to say that there isn't an objective moral moral morality
1: system. Yeah, I I think he uses those more to argue against the first premise, right? Because I think he's offering these as alternative objective moralities that don't require God in order to refute the first premise, now, I mean, maybe somewhere else he does that, but I think in this video, he's primarily doing that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess, like, I would look at it as, like, obviously when he brings up Islam, I think he's understanding that that one still believes that there's a God that's the base of that.
1: Which is um, weird, then why would you use that as an example right. of a... Right. Yeah. I but I think that's his reason
0: for that. That's my view. And I think that's being very cordial to him.
1: Okay. Yeah.
8: sorry I didn't mean to interrupt you. I think that he so I my first intuitive thought is that he's saying we can give objective accounts of morality without a God. Mm -hmm. And then Noah's right too that uh, you're you're both right that he's saying which it totally doesn't make sense granting that first word that I just said, that he would say as an example of an ethical theory that's objective without God, here's Islam. Like, that obviously right. makes sense. My only thought is that maybe we could explain it if he's he's maybe trying to again, he's got that like, kind of implicitly stated assumption that Craig is trying to use the moral argument for the Christian God in particular. So I think he's, and it, like you said, the beauty of his argument is its ambiguity. Mm-hmm. That he's, maybe he's trying to like kind of pull both those strings in this case of saying, like, we have objective accounts of morality without a god and you also have non-christian accounts of morality trying to undermine both the idea that this argument leads to a god or the christian god i think it's
7: pretty explicit if you go back one slide right where he's like uh, there you go like i don't depend on his being craig's specific god's existence Right? when he starts bringing these up, it's specifically you don't need the Christian God to have an objective account of morality. I don't think he's, I agree with that, that he's not arguing against that you can have an objective account of morality, Yeah. but just that you don't need the Christian God to do it. And I think he's actually pretty explicit about that. You know, that's a, just based on what he said. Yeah,
8: so.
3: yeah. Would this be an equivocation? fallacy where he is equivocating these theories of what the objective morality is with the objective morality itself, the reality of that morality,
1: to build on what Noah said, like the scientific theories. Can you say that again? Would would what be a equivocation fallacy? He is equivocating the
3: theories of what the
1: objective moral reality is with the actual objective moral reality. Oh, yeah, you know, I think he does do that in the video, actually, at some point. I think it's a little later. But, yeah, I think he, he just says, these objective moralities exist. What, well, those are theories. Right. Those are theories. Those aren't. And, and maybe if pressed, he would say, oh, I mean the theories or something like that. But he didn't say that in the video. And that's what I'm going off of is what's in the video. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Okay. And what I I think what we're tempted to do typically is to say, well what he really means is this. And that's fine to to think that, but I I I would I think it's good to actually address the argument as it's stated and say, This doesn't work. Try again. You know? Like I think it's awesome to be able to talk to an atheist and say, Look, your argument is just terrible. But you need to go read this guy, because he's got a great argument against Craig. Right? Go read that person and then come back and let's have a discussion after that because this stuff this is not working. Right? And I, I think we need to do that more often because it's, it shows them that we're precise. It shows them that it's like, I'm not just going to let you get away with just assuming that I know what you're talking about. You need to make your case. Put that burden of proof on the people who are making these criticisms. Like Not, not that you don't try to understand what they're saying, but... There needs to be some pressure on the people that you're talking with to say, uh, hey, I, I think I know where you're going with that, but you need to make that explicit because this just doesn't work here, and point that out specifically. So, did we deal with the, oh, yeah. So, um, are we? lost track. Where at here. Objective morality exists, substantiated. Uh, if Craig is using the second premise or definition of both premises, using the second definition of both premises, then his premise fails. Why? Because there are many types of morality that are objective in this way. They have an objective reference point that exists independent of human opinion. So this is a little different than what he stated before, but it's related. So I think Craig would say something like, look, I'm more familiar than you are with other objectivist theories of morality, uh, some of which are atheistic. My claim is that the supposed objective grounds for those other theories don't work. And if you listen to Craig's debates, he offers that. If you might not be satisfied with his reasons for thinking that other objectivist theories or subjectivist theories or emotivist theories don't work, but it's not like he doesn't give them. And it's not like he doesn't write about them. Yeah.
3: Are we now doing the same thing by saying,
1: well, he claims this in other debates. Would that be the same thing that you critiqued him for? Well, here's why I would say no. Because I'm actually drawing on his moral argument, work, the, the works where he talks about the moral argument specifically that he's offering. Now, if I were to go through, and now what I, what I think he did, is he's, he has a ton of stuff on objective morality and that kind of stuff online. And it sounds like he went and got material from his elaboration on what he thinks objective morality means, which is different. I'm not going to go into his elaboration on what it means, and then assume that he means that in his argument. Right? That's what I think he's doing. Um, when I say that, uh, when I say here, look, I'm more familiar with these objectivist theories and I deal with them. He deals with them in the moral argument. Does that make sense? The difference, or no? You. Yeah, it's, it's tricky because uh, he's a debater, right? I, th- I don't know that, like, Alan Plantinga uh, or some of these other people would do that as much because I think Craig is more practically oriented in that way. Like, he'll use what works sometimes, even if he doesn't agree with the underlying metaphysics or epistemology or whatever for something. I guess I
3: don't understand why he would do that because what we're concerned with is so if you're arguing for something you don't think is true, I don't
1: understand why you'd do that. I, I mean, I would. I don't like doing that myself. I don't think. Uh, maybe as a, I would do it as a presentation of someone else's view. Hey, here's the Leibnizian argument. If you're a, if you're a, a contemporary realist, that would be plausible. That would be something interesting to you. It could even be sort of a, a academic humility of, hey, look, I'm here, I could be wrong, so here's something, if you're from the more Platonist or the more contemporary realist camp, this might be something that you accept. So I, I think there's some legitimacy to, to doing that when you're at that academic level, because it's like, yeah, I could be wrong, you know? He, he respects Alan planning a lot. Like he thinks he's one of the best philosophers in the country. We're in the world at this point Christian philosophers in the uh so he might it might just be a, a kind of tipping your hat to that contemporary realist position and could be that
7: Like, okay, because there's many, like it's false because there's many types of morality that are objective, right? So, i.e., if you don't need the if God does not exist. You could say if something else does not exist that provides a subjective reference point, then objective moral values and duties do not exist, right? You could substitute God for some other objective reference point, is what he's asserting, I'm not sure, arguing in the in that third bullet point. Yep. Right. Um, at that point, doesn't it become a, like Craig is saying, where it's now you have to weigh, do these other objective, because to me that's a, a valid thing. If you could put another objective reference point there, then um, I don't think, at least the argument is not as powerful. Um, or I don't, it might not necessarily follow. Like if I could like, um, the person he most recently debated, right, was like, he was like, okay, well, what if you have platonic morals, Yep. right? Well, if you could make the argument, well, if platonic morals don't exist, then objective morals don't exist, objective morals do exist, therefore platonic morals exist, right? You Mm -hmm. can substitute out the the term for God. Um, And I guess then it becomes, which is a more plausible premise, but that's a, a a critique that to me actually talks about the power or the validity, maybe not the validity of the argument. I don't know, I'm describing it, but because if you could put something else there, I think at least the argument loses power if, or you have to.
1: Well, it depends, right? Like Mielenberg, yeah, that's a substantive critique of Craig's argument. But the examples that he gives are moral frameworks, use objective reference points, potential consequences as a standard. The moral framework, this is uh, Sam Harris, his, his attempt at an objective morality, says that there's an objective refer, reference point, namely the well-being of conscience, conscious creatures is the standard for objective morality. And then he says, Craig uses this, his objective reference point says, Craig's specific interpretation of Christianity as a standard. Well, that's One, that's just extremely uncharitable. That's not what Craig is saying. Sure. Um, but secondly, and I think more importantly, is are these, is this even what we're talking about when we talk about ethics? So when we talk about ethics, there is what's called descriptive ethics and there's normative ethics. Craig's always talking about normative ethics. Descriptive ethics is something like these sociologists went to this country and they gathered all this information about what people think is right and wrong. Not that it is in fact normatively something that has to command your conscience or command your uh, uh, behavior, but that when I go to this country, these people believe these things. And you can just quantify uh, the moral mores and beliefs of a particular culture. That's what's called a descriptive ethic. So what Craig's saying is, how do you, I'm not asking how you get to a descriptive ethic. You just do psychology and sociology and that kind of stuff. That's where you get a descriptive ethic. I'm asking about a normative ethic. How do we say, in fact, cross-culturally, you're wrong. The Holocaust was wrong. If you are selling little girls into slavery, you're wrong. How do you say that?
7: So, for like, say, the moral landscape one, where the reference point being stated is the well-being of conscious creatures, is, there a, is the question? Does the question then become well? Why is the well-being of conscious creatures binding? Yes.
1: As a, yep. Moral standard, okay. Yep. And that's the question Craig's asking. So he's like, look, you're giving me these objective reference points. Well, yeah, they're objective, but that's not what I'm even talking about. I'm not talking about the fact that you can point to something and say, if, um, if X or the potential consequences are X, then it's bad. And if the potential consequences are Y, then it's good. Right? He's saying... Uh, He's saying, "Why is the potential X good or bad? And why is potential X, uh, potential consequence why good? What makes it good or bad? Right? Because there's lots of potential consequences. The fact that it's mere fact that it's a potential consequence doesn't make it good or bad. There could be morally neutral potential consequences. There has to be something outside of just." the fact that X will be the potential consequence or Y will be the potential consequence for us to be able to judge normatively whether or not X or Y are good or bad. Yeah?
6: So would you say the same thing with the well-being? You have to to describe what well-being is and whether that well-being is good and where that falls?
1: Yeah, what makes it good. What makes well-being good. And what, he, he, what Craig claims Sam Harris is doing is just defining well-being as good. So instead of, instead of Sam Harris taking on the burden of saying, why is it good to, to make sure that the, the well-being of conscious creatures is elevated and seen as good? Well, just because that's just what it means to be good. So he alleviates himself of the burden of having to say, why is that good? He's just like, well, if you don't see why that's good, that's, you're just dumb. You're just an idiot probably a moral reprobate if you don't see that. Craig's like, look, I see it. I see that that's wrong. Of course, it's good to be concerned about the well-being of conscious creatures. We agree. But that, my question is, why is it good? Sam Harris thinks that's a stupid question. Craig's like, no, it's not a stupid question. You have to have some kind of prescriptive starting point to be able to... Oh. Is it the
6: same as what you were talking about earlier with like the first and the second, uh-huh. like well-being? It's
1: Ex- not describing.
6: It's like a first order, or whatever you're talking about. Yeah. And he's asking, well, you've got to go deeper than
1: that. What causes it? That's exactly right. Okay. Yes, because he keeps these guys just want to stay at uh, um, first order comments, first order statements, and Craig keeps pushing him to like, look, you're not even answering the question. The question has a second-order question. Yeah?
6: Um, so can we say that the well-being of conscious, conscious creatures is good um, because of going back to what you said like two weeks ago, um, the, like, being alive in general is metaphysically
1: good? Good, yeah. The, I think that's a whole nother conversation, which is awesome. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, metaphysically good. In, in these conversations, we're talking about moral goodness. Moral goodness is something that follows upon the will. So something is not morally good or bad unless there's some kind of volitional act that takes place. So when we talk about moral goodness, we're saying it's morally good or bad because you chose X over Y, and uh, X is good and Y is bad. So it has to be choice. Yes. Now, metaphysical goodness, you don't have to do anything to be metaphysically good. You just have to exist. So, but I think moral goodness is actually based on, metaphysically speaking, on metaphysical goodness, ultimately. But yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I... I might have got trailed off. No, it,
6: it, that does... Um, so then if the metaphysical properties of life are inherently good, then wouldn't keeping them well, or the well-being of the that life, be inherent with
1: it. Yeah, yeah. In fact, natural law people use that kind of that kind of reasoning, okay. and you say, "Look, we can we can apprehend from nature how a thing is perfected." This is getting away from Craig because Craig is a Craig's a divine command theorist. He he identifies whatever something is good because God commands it, and in the more natural law tradition, they say, "Look." it's not just in virtue of God commanding it, because there's all sorts of things God could command that would be good or bad that he probably hasn't told us. But there's something built into the structure of nature that we can apprehend what is good and what is bad from knowing things about nature. And then we, and how we then argue for God's existence is actually a cosmological approach, saying that something had to create and inform these natures and point them in a particular direction so that they're perfected in this particular way. Like an acorn is perfected by growing into a, a, an oak tree. Human beings are perfected differently. It's a lot more intricate, but it's a similar line of reasoning. I can perceive what's good for an oak tree. It shouldn't have this cancerous thing, and the leaves on half the tree shouldn't be falling off. You know, That's not a healthy, good oak tree. Uh, we can perceive that in things in nature, but we can also perceive it in human beings. It's, I don't know if I'm kind of going off on it.
7: Following on her, that you actually kind of agree with the natural law, isn't the moral landscape but essentially uh, a natural law statement? Like, the reference point is well-being of conscious creatures and ensuring the well-being of conscious creatures is good because that ensures the metaphysical goodness, right? So, like, the grounds of it is the metaphysical goodness of, of yeah. the creatures and how you tell is ensuring your well Like, that's the ground for the well-being. The well-being
1: is how you make decisions. It's kind of like... So I think what's going on here is something very much like when we talked about the Protestant Reformation. Okay. When we talked about all of this, this theology that was developed during the medieval period relied on this elaborate metaphysical like system sure. to get to certain doctrines of aseity and immutability and impassibility of God and that kind of thing. Those... The the reformers rejected the metaphysics, but wanted to keep the the confessional statements. And I think that's kind of similar to what's going on here. These guys want to reject the metaphysics underlying it, that substantiates it, and just keep the, the moral prescription without anything supporting it.
7: Yep. Right. I don't think Sam Harris would make that argument anyways, though. Sure, but it's like, would you have to argue for that position, too? Like, what grounds the metaphysical goodness of, like, animate things?
1: You'd give, a, you'd give some kind of, yeah, elaboration on that.
7: Okay, yep. would you have to, to ground that they are metaphysically good?
1: Or- Not that they are, okay. no. No, you can, you can know that. The, the, the epistemic ground is there. And this is where I think natural law theory is actually better than Craig's divine command theory. is because I think we have epistemic grounds. In other words, how we know. Epistemology is the philosophical study of knowledge and how we come to know things. So the epistemic ground is found in nature. Things have natures, and their natures inform us of more than just their physical shape. It informs us of something about what perfects those things. So the natural law person would say, well, yeah, you can see it. Of course, you can see it, and you can know that the well-being of conscious creatures is good. But the question is, is for the natural law person, they're going to say, you need some cosmological explanation for that. It doesn't explain itself. Sure. sure. Yeah.
3: Could you elaborate on what you mean by perfect
1: something? Bring to its natural end. So the perfection of a thing is to bring it to its natural end. So uh, uh, how we how we kind of construe that is by we look at nature and see that, hey, I took this fish out of water and it just died. Probably not good for the fish. I see this tree and these, these branches just keep falling off. Something seems to be wrong because over here, when all these trees grow, right, like they grow this way. So it's, a, it's kind of a deviation of how things would act according to their nature. Oak Acorns don't grow into people. People don't grow into oak trees, right, so... We have some kind of knowledge of their essence or what a thing is by observation. And what a natural law person would say is that our observation of the natural world is more than just light bouncing off of some object and hitting me in the eye, and then my mind puts it all together. They'd say there's something intelligible in the world that I can grasp that's not, that, that I. I I see things and recognize things through my senses, but more than sense data comes through, uh, more than sense data comes through the data of sense is their claim. Did I go off on a tangent there too? Okay, okay. Okay, uh, so I think we kind of covered that, but if you guys have any questions, we can come back to that. I think we're actually getting... A little low on time. Oh gosh, we're really low on time. I haven't even gotten to the other stuff yet. Uh, gosh, we have like ten min—not even ten minutes. Do you guys mind if I skip a little bit? Okay. So I love this. Eleanor Stump's like awesome. She's a philosopher at St. Louis. I would just love to see her say something like that. I don't know. All right. One thing I wanted to say. So. Um, in response to this other guy, he says, Craig's arguing from ignorance. And his claim is, is that uh, that Craig is saying, basically, we don't know what, what reason there would be for objective morality, therefore God. And he's just arguing because he doesn't know of any other options. He hasn't dealt with any of the other options. Craig, in a lot of his books, he's dealt with what's called the moral, for moral reformer's dilemma. How do you deal with a moral reformer if, say, cultural subjectivism is true? If a culture defines what's right and wrong, how do you deal with someone like Gandhi? Because Gandhi was countercultural, but we consider him virtuous. Was he immoral at the time when the culture was a caste system and then moral after? So your, your morals change like that. So there's this, uh, this moral reformer's dilemma. How do you deal with that? Now, it's, not, it's not like there's any, no responses to that but he's, he's dealt with those kinds of objections. He asks, how do you derive an ought from an is, right? How do you get, you ought not to kill from the fact that people kill people? All I observe is you killed, you killed person A. Where does this, you ought not to kill person A come from? I don't, I don't find oughtness in nature. So how do you derive an ought from an is? In the case of uh, Willenberg, I can never, is that right how do you say it, Willenberg, Willenberg? Anyway. Uh, he says, how do non-causal platonic entities cause moral properties to supervene on physical properties? This is a deep metaphysical discussion that he's having. He's not ignorant of these things. And that is an objectivist ethic. It's an alternative objectivist ethic where he develops a very robust response to Craig. And he's responding to that. Why think the prescriptive statements are reducible to subjective statements of fact? This is A.J. Ayer and The Logical Positivist. There's a form of subjectivism. So he's dealing with a lot of different meta-ethical theories. He's not ignorant of those things. Uh, Again, it's in other works. Uh, I'm not the only person to say... Oh, there's other people who say that if God doesn't exist, in fact, largely up until very recently, most people said if God doesn't exist, then there's no objective morality. And then that's where a lot of these subjectivist theories of morality come in. Uh, Bernard Fallacy... I want to get to the... Sorry. A, okay. Last thing. Craig uses this deductive argument. He says that if there are objective moral values and duties, then God exists. Therefore, you know, there are objective moral values. Right? This is a deductive argument. I actually like the abductive argument better. It's a little bit for, weaker of a form of an argument, but I think it deals with a lot of the things that atheists and agnostics and others who don't agree with Christian theists... Their, their concerns about alternative meta-ethical theories or explanations of what does it mean to be good? What does it mean to be bad? What grounds objective goodness and what grounds objective badness? That kind of thing. So Baguette's approach, and Baguette's actually uh, influenced Craig recently. Um, he says, there exists in the world facts, the fact of moral judgments. We have A, B, C, D, and E are possible explanations for the fact of moral judgments. A, B, C, and D do not have as much explanatory scope and power as E, so E, objective morality, is probably the best explanation for the fact of moral judgments. Then he goes on to say, E, uh, E is that moral. E is that moral facts are best explained by their existing in objective morality. F, G, H, and I and J are possible explanations for E, namely objective morality. J, God has the most explanatory power and scope for E. So another way of stating this is, objective morality is the best explanation of moral experience. The existence of God is the best explanation for the existence of objective morality, therefore God likely exists. It's a probabilistic argument, okay? And I just wanna give you a real quick rundown of a uh, simplified version of how that kind of argument might work. It starts with the fact of human moral experience. Basically, everybody in the world says, hey, that's wrong. Hey, that's good. Hey, that's bad. Even if we disagree on the content, all of us make these moral claims. Nietzsche said as much, even even JL Mackey. All of these guys, none of them denied the fact that everyone makes these moral claims and that most people think that they're saying something objectively true. They don't deny that, typically. everyone gets mad and thinks somebody else is morally wrong. So what we start to do is elaborate on the details of our moral outrage or of our moral feelings of moral superiority or moral inferiority and stuff like that. And we see that we act uh, as if moral judgments and tastes are different. In reality, if we actually go, people might say, no, morals, uh, objective morals and tastes, there isn't objective morals. Morals and tastes are basically the same thing. We don't act that way. We act as if there's a real difference between what people, in fact, do and what they should do. We act as if we can legitimately offer rational reasons instead of mere psychological causes for our points of view, moral points of view. I mean, tons of huge movements have started out of some kind of moral outcry, for good or for bad. So you have everybody from Martin Luther King to Adolf Hitler saying, we should do this. Why? So that we can accomplish this good end. Now, obviously, we don't think Hitler, I don't think Karl Marx uh, were actually right about their good ends. But they thought that they were. And they, they argued for it on moral grounds. Kids do the same thing. You do it in business. You do it in politics. Right? We've got all sorts of opposing moral viewpoints. Everybody does this. Why? We naturally see a difference between matters of morality and matters of taste. So theories that reduce morality to taste are claiming that we're all wrong about this basic intuition. So matters of taste, they lack a sense of outrage when someone differs from us. They lack a sense of duty. Like I don't have a duty to like chocolate ice cream. I don't have a duty to like mod pizza, even though I do. Don't have the sense, they don't have the sense to impose uh, taste Oh my gosh, why am I not reading well? I'm sorry. They don't have the sense to impose taste on others such that you would legislate chocolate ice cream as everything, we only things we can eat. But morality does. You have a sense of outrage and indignation when somebody violates the moral law. You have a sense of duty to it. There's a sense of oughtness. Like, I should be doing better. I should be doing more good things. I should have not cheated that person. We feel justified in forcing other people to comply with moral principles, and in fact laws are just that. Everyone's, I've heard people say things like, you shouldn't legislate morality. What else are you going to legislate? That's exactly what you legislate. You say you shouldn't do this, and if you do it, we're going to put you in jail or we're going to fine you. That's what laws are. We offer reasons for our moral positions. So someone says, making abortion illegal is evil, why? because it removes the dignity of a woman by not allowing her whoa, to make her choices about her own body. It's evil because it will continue, people, women will still have abortions, but it'll be unsafe. It's evil because it ushers back in an outdated patriarchy, which entails severe oppression of women. Right? They're offering reasons for their moral position. What they're not doing is offering psychological causes. Why do you think making abortion illegal is evil? Well, it's bad because chemicals in my brain have determined me to think it's bad or because I was raised that way to think it's bad or because I have anxiety when people talk about abortion and that's why it's wrong. Okay? The distinction is between offering objective, rational reasons for a moral claim versus offering psychological causes for a claim. And when you offer objective reasons for a claim, you are implying that your claim is objective by the very use of a rational uh, justification for it. So how do we go about this? We develop criteria. Oh man, is it okay if I just do these last two slides? I know it's nine o'clock, okay. Okay, so we develop a criteria, and we can talk about whether this is a good criteria or not, but theories that explain the data in a way that's not ad hoc are preferred. Theories that don't require inconsistency between the theory and practice are to be preferred. Theories that are not in, uh, error theories are to be preferred and theories that explain the broadest range of relevant data are preferred. So when we look at, we just take two examples, objectivism and subjectivism. Uh, objectivism uh, says, look, our common sense notions that there are real distinction between morality and taste is correct. Our use of rational reasons for justifying moral positions are natural and reasonable. And I should put emotivism here, I'm sorry not subjectivism, uh, A.J. Ayer. He says, our common sense notions that there is a real distinction between morality and taste is incorrect. Even though we all think that, you're wrong. You think you're saying that, this, that Hitler was wrong, but what you really mean is, I don't like Adolf Hitler, okay? He says, the use of rational reasons for justifying your moral positions are well-intentioned errors. So he said, look, I know people like to offer rational reasons for their moral positions. That's an entirely misguided enterprise. You shouldn't be doing that. You're not being scientific, okay? And when we look then at the criteria, again, this is an oversimplified, but I wanted to at least show you how the argument works. Objectivism, uh, and I couldn't do the check marks right. It's not an error theory. It's not inconsistent with our experience. So, actually, emotivism is inconsistent with our experience. It tells us that we're all fundamentally wrong about the way we think about right and wrong. so we would say, look, objectivism is to be preferred. That's a preferred theory. Again, we definitely need to flesh that out, but that's, that's the basic way you would argue abductively. So I'll end because it's past nine o'clock, but thank you guys.
8: Father God, thank you
7: for giving us this safe space to uh, convene and learn a little bit about um, the reasons for you and learn about what we believe and why we believe and be better able to defend uh, the faith, essentially. Um, I pray that you will give us all a good
3: week and bring us together again next Tuesday so we can do this again.